Hey, crew, before we get started today, I wanted to remind you one final time that we will be recording a live episode at Convergence Con this year in the Twin Cities. If you're going to Convergence, come check us out in room Plaza One at 5 p.m. on Friday. We're talking to Melinda Snodgrass about her episode, The Measure of a Man, and it should be a lot of fun. If you can't make it, keep an eye on our Facebook and our Twitter at EISTpod as we'll be streaming the live panel at 5 p.m. Central on Facebook and Twitter and maybe YouTube if I can figure that out. So tune in then, and if you can't make that, then you can see the show after it takes place on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod if you're a member. And if you're not, what's the holdup? One dollar a month gets you access to exclusive content like live shows, my DS9 recaps, episode commentaries, show merch, and much more. Go to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod, and for one dollar a month, you can become a member of the crew. Make it show. One more note, the show was recorded well in advance of the news of the passing of Harlan Ellison, and I coincidentally ended up talking about him quite a bit with Andy on this episode. But it's no surprise considering how influential he was in sci-fi. I'm planning a tribute show to honor Harlan to be released soon, and I need your help to do it. Longtime listeners to the show will know that I often ask guests for their Harlan stories, and sometimes I get a few if people aren't too scared to tell them. And if you or someone you know have a story of working with Harlan or of meeting him, do me a favor. Call us here at the show at 612-234-5232, and you can leave a message with your story about Harlan. That's 612-234-5232. Just so you know, there's a chance your story will be used on the air. But Harlan won't hear it. He's on to better things, so don't worry about that. One more time, that's 612-234-5232. And that's it for the business. I had a rollicking good time talking to Andy Weir. He's a funny guy, and he loves him some Trek, so let's get to it. Let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Failing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and everyone always yells, Crazy Ivan! But no one ever asks, How is Ivan? I'm worried about that guy. I'm joined on this episode by Andy Weir. Andy is a New York Times best-selling author and a recipient of the 2015 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. His first novel, The Martian, a near-future tale about a NASA astronaut stranded on the Red Planet, was adapted by Ridley Scott into a Golden Globe-winning film of the same name in 2015. His recently released second novel, Artemis, is available now. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Permission to come aboard granted. (laughs) Boarding now. Yeah, today we'll be talking about balance of oh terror. God, oh God, transporter error. Oh no. <laughs> God, oh no. Did you get him? Did you get him? We didn't. And what we did get didn't live very long. That is still to me. I, what I a way to start a movie. Yeah. I know we're here to talk about an episode of, uh, <laughs> of the series, but man, like that is one of the most eerie and like freaky things I've ever seen in any movie. And Star Trek, the motion picture wasn't even trying to be a horror movie, but I was like, oh God. That was just so creepy because you don't see it. You just hear the guy at the starbase saying it. 
Yeah. Oh, what that can happen? Get, <laughs> what we did get didn't live very long. It was like, right. oh, God. <laughs> no anyway, future for that guy. Yeah. Sorry for the random aside. <laughs> no, no. Uh, sometimes the uh, beautiful future can be horrible. It's not just the topes and the uh, eggshell whites and the terrible colors. Also, transporter <laughs> accidents happen as well. That's true. Uh, well, like I said, we're talking about Balance of Terror. It's uh, Trek is known for its heroes who are warrior poets with humanist ideals and a thirst for exploration. But no story would be complete without an antagonist. And over the years, Trek has delivered villains of every variety, from the godlike Trelane to the enigmatic species 8472. But what makes a good villain? The ability to overwhelm the Federation like the Dominion, or the ability to destroy the soul like Gull Madred with nothing but four lights? And are the best villains strange aliens who want to destroy what we are, or the ones who are more like us than we'd like to admit? But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Andy, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Oh, boy. I mean, I've been a Star Trek fan since I was a little kid. I mean, the the original series was already, you know, done and in reruns by the time I was born. Sure. My dad and I used to watch it every day. It was kind of a thing that we would do. It was, in, mm-hmm. it was on at 5 p.m. every weekday when I was uh, a little kid. And so he would try to get home from work by 5 p.m. and we'd watch it, we'd watch it together. Yeah. Uh, God bless syndication. I think that's pretty much yes. how we all came to it. These yeah. days, I don't know, because there's a million channels and they're streaming and hopefully um, kids, uh, aspiring young sci-fi fans, I'm sure they're finding things in their own way. But yeah. Well, sure. And uh, of course, I think that, I mean, I recently, you know, rewatched the whole original series with the with the, the remastered ones with the new CGI stuff in them. And, yeah. and I mean, I think that's on Netflix, or at least it was when I watched it. Yeah, um, they're still there for now. I'm okay. sure with uh, Paramount uh, and CBS pushing forward their all-access service, uh, we'll probably soon oh. see the Star Trek shows head over there. Well, that's fine because I'm also um, I also have CBS All Access, so Me wherever, too. wherever they <laughs> want to put it, you know, because I wanted to watch Discovery, which I loved. Um, but yeah. anyway, we're here to talk about Balance of Terror. Uh, we, we I tend to about... wander off when when talking about Star Trek, like you mentioned Trelane earlier. So <laughs> is Trelane a Q? Uh, that is a good question. Um, and I am it, not remotely the first to ask it, but, uh, I, I feel, I feel like he is a Q. Yeah. Like a, like a little baby Q. Yeah. He's a baby Q. And he loves playing the piano. Yes. Tally-ho. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you began working as a computer programmer at a very young age and moved into a career as a software engineer. But even before The Martian, you were writing science fiction. Oh, sure. I mean, for some reason, the story of my life, uh, people are like, oh, this guy, this, you know, this computer geek came out of nowhere and wrote the motion. It's like what you didn't see was 20 years of writing that wasn't very good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I always wanted to be a writer. I just uh, wanted regular meals. So I became a programmer. But uh, I was always writing. I mean, The Martian was my third full length novel that I wrote. And God knows how many short stories. Sure. And the story of the publication of The Martian is an unorthodox one. Um, I mean, initially you were releasing it for free on your website. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was uh, just uh, I had my own writing site uh, set up where I'd post whatever, you know, short stories, anything like that. And The Martian, I posted a, a, a like one chapter at a time as I wrote it. It was one of three serials I was working on at the same time. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it was like the the biggest thing that's happened in my life <laughs> it was just like, I mean, it's like you fantasize about this stuff but you never think it's going to happen not many bestsellers that become Ridley Scott movies start as something that's being given away uh true <laughs> <laughs> but it's well, I really... don't know I think well, I, I think uh Exodus was uh you know 
of the book of the Bible. That's free, right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Are you are you are you ranking yourself along with God as uh, authors uh, well, that Ridley Scott is? Technically Moses. Okay. Oh yeah, that's true. So let's. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I can't wait for the uh, rest of the movies in the Pentateuch series. the uh, Pentateuch cinematic universe right the PCU and then uh, (laughs) uh, and then I guess the Genesis would be a prequel right yeah exactly yeah you have to go to the prequels yeah yeah and then the prequel stories you know every movie wants to do one I don't know why we get it the earth was created yeah come on uh, scientific We're going to act- go through the origin story again. <laughs> right. Exactly. We get it. We get Adam and Eve. We understand. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, scientific accuracy was clearly an important goal for you in writing the novel. And the science passes nearly every test it's put up against. I mean, when you've got guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson giving the thumbs up, you're doing something right. How did you get that accuracy? How did you attain the accuracy in those fields with which I assume you're unfamiliar? I mean, you're not a like a physicist or a rocket scientist. Uh, I am not, but I am I am a space enthusiast. So, oh. I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm an enthusiast. Sure. But, um, you know, you're, you, people are knowledgeable in the things that they're passionate about. If you're a gearhead, if you're way into muscle cars, then you're going to know a lot about cars, right? And if you're right. into gardening, you're going to know a lot about plants. Well, I know a lot about space. So I started... I started with more than a layman's knowledge, and then I did a ton of research, just a buttload. And it's easy for me to do research. I I, I like that. I like that part. It's the pesky writing and characters and stuff that is hard. (laughs) But the the research and math and stuff, I'm I'm solid on that, and I had a good time doing it. Was your research uh, internet-based, or did you uh, get your library card out? Do you have friends who work in the industry? All internet. All internet. My primary research tool was Google. Yeah, sure. And nine times out of ten, I would end up at a Wikipedia page. Mm. Um. But uh, uh, and then also my readers, my fans, um, while I was posting it, uh, you know, a chapter at a time, it took me three years to write. I'd accumulated about 3000 regular readers. And so they're all science minded dorks as well. Sure. And so they would they would email me if I got anything wrong. And so it was like having 3000 fact checkers. It was great. Yeah, that is great. That, I mean, that's definitely a resource that I don't know, Byron or somebody wouldn't be able to uh, employ. But it, being a modern author, you've got that at your fingertips. Yeah. And Byron's odes are, you know, I don't know if they're scientifically accurate. I, I just don't know. Yeah, I don't think they pass over <laughs> for sure. Uh, we're talking about villains and adversaries on the show today. But the Martian lacks a central villain, or as I read somewhere, uh, I think the villain of the book could be considered just circumstance or, or, well, or not Mars. being alive. Mars is the villain, sort of. Yeah, Mar- I mean, yeah right. <clears throat> well, um, yeah, it's a survival story. It's man versus nature. So yeah. it, in the, I, I, it's you know the seven trillionth man versus nature story that has been written, <laughs> right? Wiki- it, Wikipedia tells me that's called a, a Robinsonade. Robinsonade, that's correct. Right. And because Robinson Crusoe was the first, um, was the first story of that type. And so, yeah, the the enemy is circumstance. It's yeah. uh, it's it's. Yeah, and so it, it it ends up having a fairly positive message because literally everyone involved is working together. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and I think it's interesting to note that uh, John W. Campbell, the guy that the award that you won was named after, uh, one of his books is The Moon is Hell, which is uh, one is of hell. the first sci-fi Robinson Aids, yeah. And it's about, yeah, yeah. It's got to be an out-of-body experience to have the guy who made Alien and Blade Runner want to turn your book into a film. But to top it off, you've got a guy uh, in Drew Goddard who worked on Buffy and Alias and Cabin yeah. in the Woods turning your text into a screenplay. 
Yeah, no, it was awesome. Originally, Drew was set to direct, actually. He left right. the project to go work on um, the next Spider-Man movie. Mm. Uh, and, then, and that's when they said, well, who wants to direct this? And Ridley Scott said, I will. And Ooh, we were like, yeah. wow, okay. We got <laughs> Matt Damon playing lead and Ridley Scott directing. This this, this could be good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it was, again, it was surreal. And what's weird is in the movie industry, there's no moment where you pop the champagne. It's not like this is officially green-lighted. It just edges closer and closer until eventually they're sh- you know, shooting scenes. And then you're like, okay, well, now it's green-lighted. Right, right. And so, you know. Up to and including the premiere, you're like, is this, this might get canceled. Well, no. Once they start shooting scenes, they're on the hook to pay all the actors right. uh, their contracts. And that's big money. And so once they've shot their first scene, then even if they wanted to back out of the project, the cheapest way to do that is just to make the movie and release it. Uh, when he was uh, developing the screenplay, did Goddard consult with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, mostly on scientific stuff. Sure. Um, but some creative things. Not not a ton, but some. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he was on the phone with me almost every day. Just uh, He wanted to really fully... It was important to Drew that the, that the story keep its scientific accuracy. He saw yeah. that as a central pillar and I'm glad he did. And, um, so he was, uh, I was, I was there ready, ha- ready, willing and eager. That's great. Uh, in some of the interviews that I've seen, everybody always talks about how sure they had to adapt it into a film, but it was also, you know, they wanted to keep it true to the book because it was laid out so well and the science was so interesting and they wanted to get as much of that as possible, um, on the, on the, on the screen. Yeah. They really did a fantastic job with the adaptation. I mean, I couldn't, you couldn't ask for a more true to the book adaptation. They had to cut some stuff out, but you know, yeah. it's a six hour movie if they hadn't. Oh, well, and, sure. And the stuff they cut out is if it had been up to me, it was not, but if it had been up to me, I would have cut out the same stuff. So yeah. can you tell us about your newest book, Artemis? Yeah. Um, Artemis takes place in the first, uh, human city on the moon and therefore the first human city anywhere off of earth. Uh, the main character is a woman who's a small time criminal, mostly smuggling and she uh accepts a job she 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 has an opportunity for one big score and um takes it up and uh of course everything goes fine there are no complications and it's a really straightforward job no everything goes wrong (laughs) of course (laughs) that's what always happens in these stories i don't come up with new story i don't come up with new interesting concepts i just like taking interesting concepts and doing my own thing with them and are you relying on hard sci-fi again even though it's set in the near future yes um artemis takes place in the 2080s uh 2084 actually Mm. and um everything in it it, it's it's actually more scientifically accurate than the martian um, because everything in it is real science. Uh, there, there's no, like in the Martian, there were a few hand wavy things like the scale of the ion propulsion that Hermes has is something uh-huh. we don't have that technology right now. And yeah. the, um, radiation shielding, which is not really explained at all that have canvas has, but in, um, Artemis, I did not make it. Well, there is, there's a MacGuffin later on in the story that is some science that's possible, but not yet existing. Everything else is science that actually exists. Sure. Do you tackle um, the sort of the, the corporate adoption of spaceflight in the future, which I'm, I'm assuming that's where how space travel is going since the government, or at least our government, doesn't seem very interested in, in uh, pushing it forward. Right. Um, well, the whole premise of Artemis, the main conceit is that... Um, 
commercial competition in the space industry has driven the price to low Earth orbit down low enough that middle uh, middle middle Earth <laughs> middle Earth <laughs> middle Earth people middle class people can afford to go to space. I don't know mm. about middle Earth people. I, I, hobbits <laughs> in space—that's a different issue. Sure. Uh, but. Um, uh, middle class people can afford space tourism. So now there's a, a huge space tourism industry because there's that addressable market, right? Sure. And um, once you can get into low Earth orbit, it's actually not that much more expensive to get to the moon. The hardest part about getting to the moon is leading Earth. Um, and so I, I did the like a 10 page long um, economic analysis of where the space industry might go. You can find that on businessinsider.com if you care. Oh. Um, and worked out like how much it would cost to transport stuff to the moon in that model. And um, from there, it becomes uh, economically viable to have a resort town on the moon, which is what okay. Artemis is. It's it's sure. for tourism. That's that's where their money comes from. And I've heard that uh, Lord and Miller are set to adapt Artemis with Fox again. Yes. Uh, they uh, Fox has bought the movie rights. They have uh, uh, you know, Phil Lord and Chris Miller set up to direct. And, uh, of course, right now, nothing is going on because of the holidays. Everything kind of stopped oh, yeah. in Hollywood this time of year. But that's still, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Well, I mean, it's not an automatic green light. Like I said, you know, in any, <laughs> right. any given movie project, it's like you're just kind of like, well, who knows if they'll do this? It has to do with circumstance. It has to do with, like, how good the story is, what people you can get involved in the project. Uh, and that's driven largely by their schedules, you know? Mm, yeah. Right. And then it's, it's all just this logistical thing. Logistics has as much to do with the movie getting made as the quality of the content. Sure. There are a lot of really good books that have never been made into movies. <laughs> like, just because of those roadblocks, I suppose. There, it is absolutely a roll of the dice. And I got very lucky with the Martian. Well, speaking of Hollywood, are you a fan of hard sci-fi films and shows like The Expanse? Yes, absolutely. Uh, James S. A. Corey, which is actually two guys, um, right. uh, and I, uh, we, we, I end up uh, running into them a lot at conventions. There's a, there's a, there's an homage to The Martian in uh, one of the, uh, one of the Expanse books. There's a, really? there's a ship called the Mark Watney. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, really good series. I love hard sci-fi. I love what they're doing. Um, after after the Martian came out and did well, I thought, "Ooh, this is awesome!" Since I've I've accidentally proven that hard sci-fi can sell, now we're going to have a whole bunch of hard sci-fi out there, and I'll be able to read it again because I haven't <laughs> I you know I don't get to be a consumer of it because I'm creating it right, and yeah. and nobody did like aside from uh, the Expanse novels, which are I mean they were around before the Martian, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, but there's not a lot of hard sci-fi out there. So the and we just came off of uh, the Battlestar reboot as well, which yeah. is very hard sci-fi. Hardish. I mean, there's it, well, yeah. there's still faster than light travel and eight, right. you know, but yeah. But I was kind of disappointed that there wasn't a you know flood of hard sci-fi because I would be reading it if if it were. Um, mm. However, it does mean that I kind of have this niche market to myself, which is good for me business wise. But <laughs> right, I kind of Keep... wish that I had more hard sci-fi to read. <laughs> <laughs> be content that you're running the show uh, for now, I suppose. For the moment. Why did you choose this specific episode, Balance of Terror, to talk about today? Well, um, as a kid, it was always my favorite episode. It was just, it was an entirely different thing. Like, I had never seen Run Silent, Run Deep, which is a, mm. a World War II submarine movie that mm -hmm. Balance of Terror is similar to in a lot of ways. I mean, Balance of Terror, I, I, I was once, if I may name drop a bit, I was once, sure. I was having lunch with, um, with uh, Drew Goddard and, um, and Joss Whedon, mm. and... They were talking, and Joss listed off his 
five favorite submarine movies, right? Okay. Like, <laughs> so five favorite submarine movies are like, you know, Crimson Tide, stuff like that. But yeah. several of them were not submarine movies. Like Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan was one of his favorite submarine movies. He's saying sure. that that's basically the plot of a submarine movie, right? Yeah. And so um, Balance of Terror is, is similar to Run Silent, Run Deep. It's two very clever uh, enemy captains like trying to outsmart each other it was it was just i loved it i loved the tactical outwitting back and forth and we got these guys we got those guys and and you and and empathizable villains which is which was very rare at the time it used to be in science fiction i mean this is like the mid 60s right science fiction used to be the villains are all bug-eyed monsters or you know (laughs) space nazis or whatever right yeah Uh, but this one was like you know, the commander, the Romulan commander, who I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Uh, I don't think he's named in the script. Is he? He's just commander? Yeah, oh. just, he's just the commander. Ah, well, I feel better about not. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it was played by the actor who later played Sarek. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was a like a, a dignified man who, like, didn't really like the stuff that he was doing, but he's a soldier and he's obeying orders. And, I mean, Star Trek is, like definitely has like super heavy handed cold war metaphors all throughout it. Right. And this was, this was no different, but um, I don't know. I thought I, I just, there was a lot of unique stuff in there that I had never seen before in science fiction. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that are new to the series in this episode as well. Yeah. Like the Romulans. Yeah, exactly. The neutral zone also (laughs) for that episode. Yeah. In that episode, the neutral zone makes sense. It's basically a no-fly zone, right? It's like a DMZ yeah. between two, you know, empires. But then later on in the Star Trek mythos, the neutral zone just became this magical place where if you go into it, you're at war with the Romulans, right? right. right. And I'm like, well, well, hang on a minute. Like, if you go into it and you get attacked by Romulans, you could say like, okay, you're in the neutral zone too. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, you... that, isn't that just as bad? <laughs> yeah. Or if can you like shoot somebody from across it, or can you sit yeah. inside of it and oh, like fire I, at somebody I, who's not in it? I get the impression that the neutral zone is like far wider than weapons range. It's like it's like you know the area. It's like there are entire star systems inside the neutral zone. Sure, yeah, it should be like a whole sector. Yeah, yeah right. And so it's not like you could fire a phaser across it. Well, we're talking about the original series episode, Balance of Terror. As I said, it's the 14th episode of the first season. It first aired on December 15th of 1966. And you mentioned the uh, TOS remaster program that happened in the mid-2000s. It was actually the first episode released for the remaster program on the 16th of September in 2006. It was written by Paul Schneider, who also wrote The Squire of Gothos. We were talking about Trelane before. (laughs) for the original series. Also, he wrote the Terratin incident for the animated series. That's the one where the crew gets shrunken down very small. In yep. his career, Paul wrote for television, including an episode of Gene Roddenberry's The Lieutenant, along with his wife, Margaret. Paul and Margaret also wrote scripts together for the uh, were for contemporary, contemporary medical dramas at that time, Dr. Kildare and Marcus Welby, MD. They also wrote for Buck Rogers in the 25th century in the early 80s, as well as for Eight is Enough. And I discovered they wrote an episode of the Canadian sci-fi series, The Star Lost, which means it's time once again to play that fun game. Aaron tries to find another human being who's heard of The Star Lost. I have never heard of the Star Lost. No, sorry, skunked again. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that one I don't know. The Star Lost is a Canadian television show. Uh, it only went one season, and I think it was from like 1972 or three. It stars Kier uh, from uh, 2001, and it's about a generation ship 
which is um, as all <laughs> never get on a generation ship because something always goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. Uh, you're right. Just like your uh, your theory about um, heist movies. <laughs> yeah. And so something goes wrong. And this guy who's in a, one of the um, habitats, which is set up to be kind of a Puritan sort of Amish farming community, like gets you- out into the body of the ship. And then, of course, he encounters all the weird people from other habitats. And it was um, it was created by Cordwainer Bird. So you know what that means? It was created by Harlan Ellison, and he didn't like it, so <laughs> he took his name off of it. Oh. And it's really, I mean, it's its a stupid show. It's not very, um, it doesn't have a very high budget, but I just, to me, it really embodies the imagination of, like, late 60s, early 70s sci-fi. It's the kind of show where they needed a, a big villain, you know, for some of the uh, last episodes, so they got Walter Koenig to come in <laughs> and play a bad guy. <laughs> hey, it worked for Babylon 5. Exactly. Well, it did work there. That's true. Walter uh, Koenig. But as the bad yeah, right. guy. Yeah, uh, as Bester, yeah. Bester. So, was it Bester so anyway, or Fester? I can never remember. Was it Bester? Or Fester. <laughs> no, <I'm going> <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I'll keep trying, I guess. Uh, hope springs eternal. <laughs> I remember that episode of the animated Trek series where they got shrunk down. I remember there was one scene where they, uh, they, they couldn't get through the door because they weren't tall enough for the little eye that sees them when they're approaching the door to open the doors. And so they had to wave like a toothpick over it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And uh, I think Sulu falls out of his uh, chair and breaks his leg. And so they have to manipulate the full size bone knitter over him while he's like a tiny doll size in order to get him better. (laughs) Uh, This episode is directed by Vincent McAviti. He's a director of other uh, five other classic episodes of the original series. Uh, I'll list them off. Dagger of the Mind, Miri, Patterns of Force, Omega Glory, and Spectre of the Gun, all of which are some of my favorite episodes. Hmm. And the start date for this episode is given as 1709.1. So your assignment, Andy, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Balance of Terror. Hmm. Um, 25 words. Okay. Um, federa- uh, Federation outposts near the neutral zone are being destroyed. The Enterprise goes to investigate uh, space battle ensues. <laughs> I don't know if that's 25 or less. <laughs> I think that's pretty close. It's at least 25 syllables, yes. so we'll, we'll accept that. Here's some interesting facts about this episode from the Memory Banks. Um, as you mentioned, the film, or this episode, bears more than a slight resemblance to multiple World War II submarine dramas, like Run Silent, Run Deep, and specifically The Enemy Below, which is a Robert Mitchum film from 1957, which depicts a high seas duel between an American destroyer and a German submarine. Paul Schneider, the writer of the episode, has never confirmed that it was an intended homage, but the influence is clear. There's an apocryphal story that, here he comes again, Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison. Her, yeah, heard <laughs> that uh, that uh, Schneider was uh, adapting this and for some reason got really mad and never spoke to him again. And so... <laughs> that seems in character. <laughs> that's pretty much how every... <laughs> Harlan Ellison was at Starbucks and got mad and never spoke to anybody again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how all those uh, stories uh, end. But um, it's clear that it's an unintended homage. Um, some of the tactics used by the opposing ships uh, and also the uh, pointed feel, the naval feel of the actions of the crew in this episode um, reflect those films. Speaking of Earth naval combat, photon torpedoes wouldn't be introduced to the series until the episode Arena later in the first season. So the phasers in this episode have a new sort of ability. They can fire in sort of a burst-like manner, a reminiscent of torpedoes or, or depth charges. Depth charges, yeah. 
And uh, Barbara Baldavin appears in this episode as Lieutenant Angela Martin. She's the one in the space wedding at the beginning. Uh, the character would reappear in the first season episode, Shore Leave, and Martin herself would appear as Lieutenant Lisa in the final episode of the series, Turnabout Intruder. And I thought it was interesting to note that when Martin arrives at the chapel for her space wedding, she takes a moment to kneel at the altar, indicating that she's, she's Catholic. Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's easy to forget that even as recently as the 60s, there was still prejudice against Catholics uh, in America. So it's another great example of Trek trying to push things forward in terms of representation. Hmm. That's cool. But you knew, like, five minutes into that episode, you knew e- either the bride or the groom was going to die. One of them's got to go. Like, one of those two, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're going to go. I also have some problems with the Enterprise's combat uh, workflow, where uh-huh. the captain has to say fire and then um, <laughs> let's see. The captain says fire, and then the uh, then Sulu pushes a button, right? And right. then that information gets sent down to the fire control room, where someone right. has to sit at a console and push a button ringed with lights. Yeah, and right. <laughs> I feel like we don't need all those steps. I feel, yeah, and I, if there's a, <laughs> I feel like maybe that button with all the lights on it could be at Sulu's station, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be farther away from the phaser coolant uh, yeah, conduits as well. a little further away from the coolant, yeah, and, and <laughs> you know, like that. But what they were doing, of course, is that's the torpedo room, right? Right. Yeah. Basically, of a of a of a submarine. So they, that that's what that was about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Enterprise has certain inefficiencies here and there, like on the <laughs> like on the captain's uh, chair, the button for what is it? intercom is next to the button for eject pod <laughs> right <laughs> like, it's like easy there i, mean, I don't know such tiny buttons i don't too. know if yeah. the federation has osha <laughs> <laughs> yeah right well no kidding yeah uh i mean if i can tell my phone to order a pizza you think they could work some voice command thing out well the but, other yeah. thing is how many times in star trek have you seen somebody die ultimately as a result you know aboard the enterprise ultimately as a result of falling or something falling on them. Right. Right. And I'm like, you have artificial gravity. You, you can turn that off. <laughs> like <laughs> right. maybe in combat situations, you should turn off the artificial gravity. <laughs> right. Yeah. No problem. I'm just saying anyway. Yeah. Uh, budget. It's always budget. It's always on the original budget. series. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about the expanse before. Like when they go into combat, you know, they're not thrusting in one direction to provide gravity anymore. Yeah. So everybody has to strap in when they're going to uh, yeah. do combat maneuvers. Yeah. Uh, this episode, of course, introduces the Romulans to Trek. The Romulans and their society are based on the Roman Empire and they're largely the brainchild of Schneider. As I'm sure you know, um, when producing a script or writing for TV, you know, lots of people get involved and contribute ideas. But according to both John D.F. Black and D.C. Fontana, both of whom served in su- supervisory roles pertaining to scripts for the series, the Romulans were all Paul. Their Roman aspect, it seemed like a good fit for a power that could challenge Kirk and the Federation, although Gene Roddenberry did initially suggest that they could represent the communist Chinese, but eventually they went with that Roman thing, which I think worked out for everybody. Well, the Klingons were really the communist Chinese. Yeah, right. right I mean, right. The, the original classic Trek Klingons all had that sort of yellow face Asian. Vaguely Asian. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I love the Romulans. I've, I've always I've always liked them far more as, a, as an enemy than the Klingons because they're more subdued. Like, mm-hmm. I've always had a problem with my uh, suspension of disbelief when it comes to Klingons. I'm like, how can a society that is like so primitive that they like settle things with single combat, how can they right. end up like having the infrastructure to actually be a military foil to the Federation. 
I, I, I have a real problem believing that. And, um, but the Romulans are cold and calculating and they have this manifest destiny attitude about the galaxy and they are an empire with an emperor and they're very well structured and organized and they're basically just bad Vulcans, right? Like right. bad as an evil um, and not even yeah. really evil. They just got their own thing going on. I mean, yeah, I always thought that the Klingon uh, observance of, of that sort of lifestyle was probably more. Uh, more of the spirit than the letter of the law. Like yeah. they talk about how if you disagree with your commanding officer, you stab him. But I yeah. think like maybe there's a lot of like empty threats that get thrown around. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I don't like that. Maybe I'll stab you. But then, you know, nothing really but happens. But then I'm not actually going to stab you. See that guy in the lunchroom later and it's like, oh, no, everything's fine. Yeah, no, we're cool. I, I decided not to stab you. Um, <laughs> no, so that's, I, I always had a difficult time believing like, okay, so at what point are there a bunch of nebbish Klingons with like lab coats on inventing warp drive. You know, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, I challenge you to honorable combat. Well, actually, I've got some math. I need honorable combat. Okay. And then he dies. Right. And no warp right. drive. And so I'm just like, <laughs> how did that happen? Although, to be fair, I guess the humans invented warp drive at like a bunker up in the middle of nowhere after an apocalypse. So. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, the guy from Babe figured it out, and he was drunk yeah, half the time. Farmer so, yeah, Farmer invented. <laughs> right. That'll do, pig. That'll do, warp drive. Well, this, uh, nobody in the Federation has seen a Romulan. Uh, this is the first on-screen appearance of them, uh, and which is a bit of trouble for Spock on the bridge. You know, when we yep. see Mark Lennard show up, you can they, we cut to Spock, and there's this look like, well, this is going to bite me in the ass oh, later. Oh, this is awkward. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, that that is another thing that I found difficult. Uh, it's it, just another one of those things that's a, a little gripe of mine on the episode. And by the way, I love the episode. I, I have these little minor gripes on every episode, so, <laughs> you know, I'm just a nitpicker. <laughs> but how do you have an entire war without ever knowing what the enemy looks like? I mean, at some point, you should— you should have blown up an enemy ship and you'd probably bring aboard a body just to get a look at what they, you know, look like. Oh, sure. If, yeah. If for no other reason than military tactics, like what can we do to kill these bodies? You know? So I, I just found that really hard to believe. And also it was, it wasn't clear to me whether or not Spock knew or merely speculated that the Romulans were an offshoot of Vulcans. Yeah. I think that that sort of, uh, you know, he sort of, um, speculates about that but it is strange you know they used the enterprise or sorry they used the romulans on star trek enterprise and they apparently like went through a lot of hoops to keep them off visual communications uh, so that they could preserve that element of the story right uh, it's theorized that if enterprise had returned for a fifth season they would have dealt with the earth romulan war of that era but that is very strange especially when you think about military intelligence and like you said like how do we kill these people um I don't know, maybe just, you know, when they were fighting these wars with nuclear bombs and lasers, they just didn't have that technology. Although, of course, we've got Skype and you can just see. Yeah, that. right. Well, they have <laughs> um, they have uh, uh, Enterprise, actually, the series, which much maligned by many fans. I think Enterprise has one of the greatest retcons in the history of television writing. Do tell. Where they explain why the Klingons in classic Trek look like humans. And the, oh, right. Of course. And I thought that was just absolutely brilliant. Some of the best writing to explain away a problem that I've ever seen. I mean, it's on on the level of Rogue One's retcon, right? It's like, 
<laughs> seriously like it, it's it's that level it's like poetry it's so good and, yeah. and i just thought that was excellent so enterprise i bet you those writers could have come up with a way to have people directly interact with romulans and then later have it not be done like oh sure the first the first answer that comes to mind is um you know the enterprise crew does have a bunch of adventures against Romulans, but then they're all sworn to secrecy because it's for political reasons, because it would adversely affect the Federation's treaty with the Vulcans. And they don't want people to realize that Romulans are basically biologically Vulcans. And I saw in an episode of, um, the, uh, what are they called? The, the, the fan made ones, the new, new, the, oh, like Star Trek continues. Yes. Or? Star Trek continues. That's exactly it. Um, they explained why women aren't allowed to be starship captains. Okay. Which you go like, yeah, why, why is it the 23rd century and we still have sexism? Well, it's because the Tellarites insisted on it, and they're one of the founding members of the Federation. So they were able to retcon it by basically saying like, oh, this other culture that is not humans insisted on that as a rule. Okay. I just retconned that by just thinking that Turnabout Intruder doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> because wouldn't the world be a better place if it didn't exist? I don't know. If I, I if I stole if I put my brain in somebody's body that was the opposite gender, I'd be too busy experimenting with that body to be trying to take over a ship. I'd be just like, <laughs> all right, let's see what we got here. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is a little off the beaten track, but you know we were talking about retcons and stuff, and yeah, I think that the um, <clears throat> the uh, augment virus one is is pretty masterful, yeah. but it's the kind of retconning that Trek doesn't generally bother too much with. Like there was never really an explanation until they decided there needed to be one. Yeah, and it, to me, it you know you mentioned Rogue One. To me, it really uh, delineates the difference between like Trek fandom and Star Wars fandom right. in that. Here's an example, like um, Rene Arbogenois, the guy that plays Odo, uh, plays a uh, like an admiral or just a Starfleet officer in a deleted scene. It's in the director's cut of Star Trek VI. Yes. And for Trek, like I always felt that coming from a episodic or like a TV a week by week production background, Trek doesn't care. Like all the time, they'll have people who have been on before will be on again because they like that guy and they just need to get him back. And we also have to have a show this week. Yeah. It's practical. And so they liked uh, Aubergenois, and then when the time came around to do DS9, they brought him in. But if this was Star Wars, there would be a five-book series about how Odo was <laughs> flying through the wormhole, and he got hit by antiprotons, and he ended up in the 23rd century, and he had to disguise himself as an admiral, and he got the nose right, but he had to have a mustache to make it work. And so that's why he's there at that time. <laughs> But usually Star Trek doesn't care, and that's one of the reasons I like Star Trek so much. I remember watching that deleted scene, and I think I know why they took it out. Because it was just stupid to have a guy with an easel flipping pages in the 23rd (laughs) century. You're like, if it was just a screen and he was doing a clicker, that'd be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And and he says, uh, we'll clean their chronometers. chronometers. Oh, like they don't have clocks? Come on. They don't have clocks. Or they don't say clock. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that was a bridge too far, for sure. Yeah, it was It was kind of a dumb scene. It was rightly removed. There are uh, two Trek veteran actors appear as Romulans in this episode. Uh, Lawrence Montaigne plays Decius. Montaigne also appeared in the first episode of the second season, Amok Time, as Stan, the rival for uh, T'Pring's affection. And of course, Mark Lennard appears in this episode as Romulan commander. Lennard would go on to appear as Spock's father, Sarek, in the season two Journey to Babel. He would also reprise the role in three Trek films films, two TNG episodes, 
and the animated episode Yesteryear. Lennard also played a Klingon in Star Trek The Motion Picture, making him the first actor to portray three major alien races, Hmm. Vulcan, Romulan, and Klingon, in Star Trek. Cool. So they like that guy. When was he a Klingon? Sorry? He was a Klingon in Star Trek uh, The Motion Picture. Oh, was he? Was I he like... he's one of the guys who gets wiped out at the beginning. Yeah, well, yeah. those are the only Klingons we see. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, they're like, huh, a gigantic space vorpal cloud. Shoot it. Oh, it shot back. <laughs> and that's it. That's all we see of Klingons. <laughs> We're done. Good day to die, yeah. Bow. Also, fun fact, the studio was considering both Lennard and Montaigne to take over for uh, Leonard Nimoy if they had not figured out the contract negotiation situation with him before season two started. Okay. So uh, Nimoy, uh, we talked about this when we talked about Amok Time on the show, but he wanted um, he wanted to get paid more. And his agent gave them, I think it was like 9000 an episode. It was something that was kind of astronomical at the time, at the time. now feels yeah silly. And they didn't want to do it, and so they were kind of keeping Lennard and Montaigne sort of on standby in case this guy didn't come back. But of course, it all worked out. <laughs> we see a Romulan bird of prey in this episode. Uh, yes. The differentiation between Romulan and Klingon ships, or the lack of differentiation, is something we can cover in the future on the show, perhaps if we ever reach uh, Star Trek Three. Well, uh, <laughs> yes. Although, to be fair, I think it was explained that the that the Klingons and Romulans had some dealings and technology exchange and stuff. That Yeah, yeah. Um, the ship uh, or the Bird of Prey class is given the class name Talis in Star Trek Online, and it was designed by Wat Chang, who created many props for the original series. The location today of that original prop is unknown, and nobody really knows exactly what happened to it. Um, here's something, another story that Might I be told cloaked. before. Ever think of oh, that? That's right. <laughs> maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it's cloaked. <laughs> Maybe you just got to uh, feel around or kind of what, just where did bring, I leave that run, run a comet tail through the area. Yeah. Anybody have any flour or <laughs> yeah. some kind of dust? Yeah, Something like that. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, thank you. Uh, a story I think I've told before in the show is that uh, Wa Chang made a lot of props for the show, but he was a uh, non-union. And so as such, he couldn't Dun-dun. officially work for the show. Yeah. And so they had a deal set up where he would make props and then uh, Robert Justman would sort of like pretend that he had found them like somewhere like in a ah. store or something. Yeah. And the uh, the network found out this time. And so they said that uh, Chang couldn't be paid for his work. And so the only thing that the production could do was just give him the prop back. And it said that he took it out in his backyard and he smashed it. So. Oh. <laughs> oh, well. So it is. Yeah, it is cloaked by destruction. Cloaked. now. It does not exist. <laughs> And this is, of course, uh, speaking of the cloaking device, uh, the first time that the Federation has encountered a cloaking device, at least it was, until the USS Shensho fought the Klingons in the Battle of the Binary Stars in Star Trek Discovery. Are you watching Star Trek Discovery? Oh, of course. Of course. Absolutely love it. I was really scared because all the stories coming out in the fandom and and people talking about it in the production, I, I know... I'm a, I'm a sci-fi guy, but I have no I had no insider information. Just what I read online, sure. it sure seemed like it was going to suck. Like, <laughs> I mean, it really seemed like this is going to be a disaster. Now, yeah. watching it uh, again, and I have no insider information, but watching it, watching those first two episodes, and then where the series goes after that, I think they had a radical change in direction. I think originally they had it in mind to be like those first two episodes for the whole series, and then yeah. they realized that. That is not working, and so they killed off all these people, and they did all you know stuff like that, and then changed it to the to the to what it became. Sure. And I think that was a a really good idea, and b made for a really awesome pilot because people died. 
die. There's no fifty. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Stuff like that. <laughs> and so, and Michael Burnham is an awesome character. They kept the right parts and got rid of the right parts. Yeah. My only complaint, honestly, my only complaint with the series is that the Klingons need to talk faster. <laughs> <laughs> they do take their time. Yeah. Tall. Yeah, no, I'm just like, oh, (laughs) so that and of course, I think the Klingons look really stupid. Um, They do look very different. Yeah, yeah, very different. I'm not sure what's up with that. But um, okay. so but I just shrug that off. And then we have yeah. like just really interesting, well-written plots. Um, I'm curious to see how they're going to. They're going to have to eventually write out the mycelium network stuff, like yeah. because that technology is not in use by anyone anywhere in classic Trek, right? Yeah. Or or right. going forward, like literally. I mean, who can teleport around? Who can fold? In the, who can teleport around other than like the Q? I mean, and like you said before, as far as like retcons or at least, um, you know, the writers go, they have, they're so smart and they have so many years of things to access that, I don't know, maybe we'll find out that the Q are involved, you know, or are, I'm sure there'll be some sort of contrivance that'll get rid of it, but we'll use I'm sure. existing Trek uh, continuity. Yeah, the, 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 they will one way or another lose their connection to the mycelium network, or maybe it'll be just that one guy, um, I forgot his name, the scientist. Stamets. Stamets. Stamets is like the only person that's ever able to do it, you know, or something yeah. like that. Maybe he becomes the traveler or something yeah. like that. You never oh, know. Oh, hold on to that one. Hold on to, to that one. To Just put that later. in your pocket. <laughs> Let's talk about the episode itself. Uh, I personally love a good submarine movie, whether it's a classic like Run Silent or something more recent like Hunt for Red October or Crimson Tide. That idea of two commanders playing a game of cat and there's another cat as well. It's a cat and cat. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And really that kind of story is an artifact of the Cold War. It's perfect for the 60s. But I think it's interesting that even a movie like Crimson Tide, which is a post-Cold War film, they still found a way to sort of bring that back. Oh no, the cold war again, well, because there's like some, uh, a, a faction of Russian right. separatists. Yeah. Get their hands on nukes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Trek seems really well suited for this kind of story with its roots in naval tradition, the Horatio Hornblower or the Jack Aubrey kind of setting. You've got a cloaking device, which is like a submarine diving and, you know, and mm-hmm. being hidden and the tactics and the jettisoning of debris and, and, um, and, and bodies and playing dead. Um, there's a great scene in The Enemy Below where the destroyer has been struck by the sub and they're trying to play dead and draw them out. And they put um, mattresses like on the deck and set them on fire to make it look like they're more damaged than they are. Uh-huh. So when the sub comes up to finish them off with the gun, they see, oh, they're on fire, Commander. And so they kind of get in closer and then, blam, they they hit him with the gun. <laughs> well, um also, uh, kind of worth noting, I think, is I you know I may be wrong. I'm I'm I don't know the order, the sequence of classic Trek episodes, like the air order, but um, this is probably the is this the first time we saw how the Federation approaches combat and war? I mean, because we've seen the uh, I I don't you said it was the 16th episode of the first season. It was uh, aired 14th, but it was actually shot eighth. <clears throat> okay. So this is like the first time we saw the Federation's philosophy on war, which is sort of, you know, speak softly, but carry a big stick. And sure, just the yeah. whole the whole way to reconcile the extremely optimistic future of of classic Trek 
with the realities of, well, you know, you still need to have a strong military to have those freedoms, you know, and it right. was, I thought it, it was a really good balance because it shows the enterprise, you know, it's, you know, it's big and it's bright and it's got, you know, people with colorful uniforms on it. And mostly the problems they have are interpersonal on the planetary level, you know, mm. but, and, and now this is like just straight up combat and you see like, okay, when push comes to shove, this is like the Federation does know how to do combat and they do it pretty well, but right. they are reluctant about it and they'd rather not. And I, it kind of set the tone for how the Federation deals with military entanglement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and up to this point, you know, the, the Enterprise has been in trouble in, in episodes like the Carbomite Maneuver. But you're right. This is where they actually get a chance to kind of go hunting. Mm-hmm. And you see on both sides, I think it's a very, um, like you said, the whole walk softly, carry a big stick thing. You see that they are reluctant to do this, but they do see that this is an opportunity uh, you know, this is a military target. And so and they even have that scene in the briefing room where they're saying, well, do we just let them go or are they going to bring um, intelligence back or something? So maybe we just we have to take this sad duty, which is we got to blow these guys up because that's that's what's going on. Well, right they now. needed to they need to blow them up on their side of the neutral zone on to their prove side. That, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To prove that it was the Romulans who did the incursion, not the other way around. Right. Even then, they end up having to chase them into the neutral zone. So right, yeah, it doesn't work out the way they want. That's another thing I like. It is like I love stories where, you know, the protagonist makes a plan, attempts to execute it, then needs to think on their feet because that their original plan just it didn't even get to step two of twenty seven, and they, right. they have to now yeah. veer off and do something else. Yeah, the worst Trek episodes, and sadly, I think a lot of them uh, of these episodes are Voyager <laughs> yeah. episodes. What? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had a little cough. That as well. Uh, <laughs> but like Voyager episodes where they come up with something and their solution is right right away. Yeah. Now, the writers put uh, stumbling blocks where they can't implement that correct solution until the last act. So it's just, you know, what percentage of the shield's at or, or whatever. Uh, there's, you take another show. <laughs> I should have another uh, podcast for the show, but uh, a show like Farscape where... And I don't know if you've ever seen Farscape. I, but, I didn't watch Farscape. Oh, you should totally check it out. But okay. in that, uh, you've got a character who is a Buck Rogers type character. He's from Earth. He watches Star Trek, you know, and so he wants to approach everything like that. In the first act, he comes up with a solution that should work. But by the second act, some element of that solution is gone. We mm-hmm. just can't do that. The guy we needed is dead or something. Like that. And then it becomes every single act is them reforming the plan to become something else until they finally just pull it out in the end, but not in a way that's, you know, satisfying for all parties involved. And they kind of go, Oh boy, that sucked. And then they move on to the next thing. <laughs> like that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that I like uh, to see. And we get a little bit of that in this Mark Leonard is, is perfect um, in his role as the commander. I wish you got a name, but he is uh, Romulan commander. Romulan commander. Yeah. Yeah. Because he is, you know, he's stoic and yet the episode allows him to be um, thoughtful as we see Kirk being thoughtful as well. Mm-hmm. There's that great scene where Kirk um, is in his quarters and we've had this, um, there's a lull, there's a, a downtime in the battle of uh, 10 hours where the Yeoman Ram are, drops by. Yeah. It says, you know, can I get anything to eat? Yeah. And you know that this entire time Kirk has been beating himself up, you know, yeah. in his quarters. And if this was a film, you know that we would flash back and we'd get this, the same scene uh, with Mark Leonard on the Romulan yeah. ship as well. Yeah. 
we see that he's not quite as down for war as uh, we might think of an enemy as being. And I also like when they go see the comet, like they're sort of using it strategically, but we also get a little bit from him where he's like, oh, it's beautiful. He's like kind of checking out the comet. Uh-huh. Uh, and we see that he's got the same sort of, we don't know if they have an well, exploratory fleet that, or a mission. Right, but that 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 beat is hit over and over again in the episode. And don't get me wrong, I don't think it's, yeah, I, 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 I think it's a good beat to have. But yeah, they keep doing that. They keep showing that um, the Romulan commander and Kirk are going through the same things, think the same things. Even at the end, you know, he, the commander says, like, in an, in another in another world, in another life, we could have been friends. We could be friends. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to blow up my ship now. But <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> well, and we see... also duty driven. I mean, he's a he's a good Romulan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the, as Romulans, not Vulcans, are creatures of duty and not logic. Uh, I think the episode says, and we see the subcommander like sacrifices his life to save his commander. So we understand that they, you know, they're not like the the Klingons in the way you described, and that they're uh, bloodthirsty. But you know, they value each other and they value human or at least Romulan life. Mm-hmm. Any villain thinks that they're the good guy. You know, they just want something different than what we want. Right. And the Romulans have their own thing going on. They've got their own empire and they consider the Federation a threat and reasonably yeah. so, especially yeah. after they watched uh, the events of the, I don't know, is it actually called the Four Years War or is that just in the uh, Axanar stuff? The Axanar fan production called it the the Four Years War, but okay. I don't know if that's actually the canon name for it. So regardless of the name of the war, it, that war itself is canon. That happened. So right. the Romulans would have seen what the Federation is like, you know, going to war with the Klingon Empire. So they yeah. would have been like, oh, OK, we need to take a firm line with these guys. Like yeah. Romulan politics makes sense. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have a favorite Trek villain? Uh, well, I do love the Romulans. Let me think about it. Boy, so many. Yeah, uh, Marlon. I mean, I love... Uh, I always perked up whenever the Romulans were in the story. Like mm-hmm. I like them as an organized, um, uh, in terms of like single entities, like single people. Sure. Uh, well, thanks to discovery, I'm starting to warm up to Harry mud, <laughs> 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 but he was, he was just a comedic enemy in the, in classic Trek and discovery. Yeah. He's a much bigger problem. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, for individuals, I always thought I, I always had a, a, a great love of Gul Dukat. He was yeah. um, he was he was the honorable e- enemy in a lot of cases. You know, he yeah. had his own thing going on. And um, oh boy, what are some other good Trek villains? Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, I like yeah. the guy that uh, flips off Kirk and Spock on the bus in San Francisco. Oh. The boombox. <laughs> He he's the guy who wrote the song that is playing on that boombox. Oh, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember his name. I also know that he made a cameo in in uh, Spider Man Homecoming. Oh, cool. Because <laughs> he also is he's a he's a you know bit part or like an extra, but he's a production guy too. And he so he uh, got a job on Spider Man Homecoming, and they went, hey, get a boombox and be on the street, and well, it'll be like a fun little call out. How about uh, uh, there was another one that was like that 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 oh, um, the most interesting man in the world. From the oh. from the uh, Dos Equis ads was right, a red that, shirt in one of the. Uh, so okay, we've covered that on the show because that was okay. the Corbermite maneuver, and oh, okay. uh, David George, the the guest on that show, does not believe me. And to be fair, he doesn't have to because again, all I've got is Wikipedia as a yeah. source. Like, <laughs> but we searched for a long time trying to find that that was true, and we never found anything out. Oh, you never confirmed it? Oh well, maybe I've fallen prey to urban legends then. Possibly, possibly, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> 
<laughs> I really like the Borg. I mean, everybody likes the Borg. Everybody but... likes the Borg. I didn't yeah. like the Borg Queen. I didn't like. Uh, her. No, yeah. I don't. I. You, you know why? Is because the every aspect of the Borg is about there is no such thing as a personal identity. There's it's like the opposite of what the Federation stands the for. Collective, you know. Yeah, right. And now we've created a Borg who has her own distinct personality. I'm like, well, that's not what you do. That's not right. how the Borg roll. Still. Um, and she's the she's the most stock kind of villain in that she's like, nah, yeah. Nah. Still, that having been said, I I think First Contact is the best of the next gen movies. So, oh yeah, yeah. You know, take that with a you know whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> I also like Q if he's considered a villain. Yeah, I is he a villain though? It's a good. Well, that's that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. he's you know it's sort of a meta commentary I think in the character, but he's the one that's continually challenging Picard and humanity to live up to these lofty ideals that we've set for ourselves, and he's he often casts us as the villain. Uh, in, in, in his stories or as being naive in our aspirations. Well, that's fair. And that's a common social commentary in Star Trek and everybody else who decides to do social commentary. But sure. I would say I go to the next step. Uh, and again, I'm this is not a unique theory of mine. But, you know, I think Q was doing his own subtle way to actually help out by like the first time the, the first time like he encounters they, they encounter Q. He like shows them the Borg. And then right. takes <laughs> yeah. them back home. And so now they know the Borg are out there. I mean, that was a warning, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and so on. And so every time Q does something to the Enterprise, it in some way, in the long term, benefits the Federation. And so I think he's helping in, you know, in the same way that, like, it's good for your dog to boop him on the snoot with a rolled up newspaper when he shits <laughs> in the living room, right? It's yeah. uh, Sorry, I don't know about swearing on your show. I don't oh, know. that's fine. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but so Q could be arguably like, you know, Picard's guardian angel in a way. And he seems it's it's like your parents. They seem like villains uh, when they're uh, disciplining you. But it's it's a lesson that you need to learn. I would just say also one thing I just got to say, what is it? Picard and the you know the next gen people dealt with Q over and over and over again. Right. Uh, Cisco saw him once, punched him, and never had a problem again. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Often, and this is you know this is kind of cheesy, but it's Star Trek we're talking about. You know, it's it's us. We are the villains. Humanity is often oh, yeah, the yeah, uh, yeah. the problem. Blah, 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 blah. And well, <laughs> noted cynic author Andy Weir. No, no, uh, it's the opposite. I'm cynical about cynicism. I'm, I'm, ah. I'm saying Star Trek is one of the few science fiction worlds that has like this very optimistic view of what humanity is yeah. going to do. It's yeah. like, look, this is a post-scarcity society, and the main thing we're worried about is exploring the stars and making sure other people don't suffer. And so I right. love that. And so when when new writers come in and they start making it all dark and cynical, and oh, yeah. are we not? the true enemy of our own demise blah 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 <laughs> right, i'm like yeah. i'll knock it off <laughs> yeah i think it's okay to have guys uh like and i'm gonna get the name wrong but is it cole in star trek discovery who's clearly just one of those <laughs> rubbing his hands together uh bad guys but the klingons as a whole oh you know, mean, yeah y- yeah um you can see that okay i mean i get that they want something different than what the federation wants but they're trying to you know, they're trying to remain klingon you know they're, okay. they're following their own societal principles oh, here Right. There's always there's always some weird monster in Trek that we don't understand that's killing people like devil in the dark. But it's it's our assumptions and our prejudices that keep us from seeing how alike that we we really are to our supposed adversaries. Okay, Uh, that's at the heart of most Trek stories. 
some are just straight up monsters <laughs> i think yeah well that's true i think the best i, I think the best ones are are the ones that i uh, described yeah i mean the, the you're talking about the horda right the sure yeah no kill i right i mean no kill I, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay that was that was a a fairly new plot at the time you know for the 60s but now it's like oh the unknown enemy turns out not to actually be that bad and, right. Yeah. You know, that 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 has now been done to the point that it's trite. Um, but I, I I loved I I love it when they would just go off the map and do whatever the hell they wanted. I love Mirror Mirror. Right. And oh sure. And th- you, you don't think of it, but I mean they invented the concept of an evil parallel dimension. That's now everywhere in fiction. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. But because of Trek. Yeah. Because of Trek and the concept in any given, you know, when it, whenever anybody's doing a comedic take on an evil dimension, whatever, you've always got to have like the character who has an, a goatee, right. you know, because <laughs> yeah. Spock, you know, evil Spock had a goatee. Right. Is there a, is there a moment or character that really stands out for you in this episode? Well, I was really bummed as watching it that um, that the commander like blew up his ship. I think he would have been a cool enemy to see over and over again. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a, a moment that stands out. I should mention that that is a moment that was specifically put into the episode, the original script or the draft. Uh, the Enterprise, Enterprise just destroys the ship, and so they're just taken out. And they added that specifically uh, to have that extra moment there with uh, we could have been friends and yeah. signing off, that sort of thing. It is not our way. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I guess that that's the moment, you know, when he blows when he when he scuttles the ship is the moment that affected me the most when I when I was watching it the, for the first sure. time, because yeah. that that I was like, you know, I expected them to lose. Obviously, I didn't expect him to destroy the Enterprise and head on home. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I was really sad to see. I mean, it affected me on an emotional level because I'd become very attached to the commander. And, uh, so that, that had a big effect on me. I was like, wow, I really did not want that guy to die. And it, it, it says something about the writing to make you sad to see the enemy lose at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also like, I mean, I mentioned before the moment where Kirk uh, is sort of beating himself up in his quarters. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact that we can see, and we see it throughout the series, but you know, Kirk is a steely eyed missile man, but at the same time, he's a guy that can, he feels this thing as well. He feels the responsibility of his crew and he doesn't want to kill anybody, but he's got a job to do. Kirk's idea of diplomacy is phaser on stun. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) We'll we'll start there and work our way up. Yeah. Yeah. There's some great camera work in this episode. There's some very claustrophobic shots of which I'm assuming are intended to mimic uh, the close feel of the submarine. Yeah. Well, the Romulan bridge was. Yeah, right. I know. It's just one foosball table in the middle with all the guys around. (laughs) I mean, like, what the hell? I mean, I'm a freaking Romulan commander. Can we get a chair in here? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shots on the bridge where you see um, there's like a dual focus thing and you see um, Kirk and Uhura or Spock uh, directly in the background. And it actually reminds me a lot. There's a lot of shots like that in the animated series, which, of course, is a budget thing because Funimation didn't spend any money on the show and they just wanted to get a bunch of uh, heads in the, in the scene, but it sort of looks a lot like that. What about, this isn't a super funny episode. It's kind of tense, but were there any um, comedy bits or jokes that you enjoyed from the episode? You know, I don't, I I can't think of any comedy bits or jokes. I mean, there was, there was that sweet part at the beginning where, which I thought was kind of cool where it's the, where it's the wedding. And he like one of the greatest, privileges a captain has is being able to marry you know people aboard a ship and this goes back to the days of your i thought that was cool calling it back to make a connection between the enterprise which is this fantastical 
starship thing and sure. the you know nautical traditions of old. Right. I thought that which, was like a nice thing. <laughs> Although it's not funny, but it was sweet. Yeah, but which uh, I have now I have to call something into question. Can captains actually do that? Is he calling back to real life or is he calling back to Captain Stubing? Because from what I, I read somewhere that captains can't actually do that. Yeah, it's not like just being the captain of a ship grants you that power. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's it's a <laughs> But of course bear in mind if you go back in time in the real world to like, you know, 1700s or whatever, people would take like 3 month sea voyages. Oh yeah. And weddings were just like there was no, there there wasn't anything official. It's just yeah, yeah. Nobody signed anything, it, right? What really mattered was whether or not you were married in the eyes of the church, as far as you know. So yeah. if you're gonna, if you're on a three month voyage and you want to get married, it seems like the captain would be a good who's the authority, right? Would be the authority, um, yeah. which probably mirrors <laughs> European power uh, structures of that era, which is that you know the king of a country is also the head of the church. Right. Of that country. And sure. so, of course, the king could marry you, right? Yeah, so, in a way, you go to whoever the highest authority is, and they have the, they have the right to marry you. And so, sure. if you're out in the middle of the ocean, that would be the captain. It's the captain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense to me. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, it's not like right now you could just like, you know— you know, the captain of a U.S. <laughs> aircraft carrier probably can't legally perform right. a marriage, but yeah, maybe they could. I don't know. Maybe maybe the yeah. Navy added that in. <laughs> uh, yeah, or the shift manager at a Red Lobster or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not going to help. Uh, there there aren't a lot of jokes. I, I did like the, uh, we get some prime uh, snark from Sulu in the briefing room uh, when Styles, who is something of an antagonist in this, he's, he's, he's pushing yeah. for an attack and he's like, they could report back that we're weak. We have to destroy them. And Sulu's like, what if they reported that they destroyed us? Would that, would that be good at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or I also so, like, I mean, I liked some of the snark that came from Styles. He was like, you know. Oh, we need to decode this and something like that. Well, maybe Mr. Spock can help you. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Kirk was like, I assume you're referring to Mr. Spock's excellence at, co- at, he's smart. at code breaking, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, what a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> the original uh, draft of the script has him dying and uh, who is it? Tomlinson, the uh, groom-to-be, actually survives, which is nice and all, but I but think not. thematically it, it's better that, yeah, Spock saves him. Although Spock can't drag two guys out of a phaser control room. Uh, yeah, seriously. Come on. Well, and also they, uh, you know, by this point in the series, you should know that Vulcans, or at least Spock, doesn't have emotions, or at least that he suppresses them very well. So yeah. it shouldn't be surprising that he acted logically. He's a freaking Vulcan. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, all right, I get it. I mean, it's not he, new he, education. <laughs> he, he assesses logically, hmm, it would be more thematically resonant if I saved the bigot. <laughs> Well, he Duty can calls. save one. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe Styles was closest to the door. I don't know. Yeah, Spock does seem a little off in this episode. It's fun. You rarely, you rarely see him surprised at anything, yeah. and he's a little bit like, oh, boy. Well, um, he screwed up, right? He accidentally turned And he hits the... Th- yeah. And that's again, kind of like... Again, I have some questions about the uh, <laughs> about the command flow of the Enterprise. If, yeah. you're, if you're running silent, <laughs> then shouldn't there be like a master switch somewhere? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like my phone. Every time I put it in my pocket, I got to type my damn ca- password again before I can do anything with it. Right. So put the slide to lock on the enterprise controls. However, um, also bear in mind, you can hack into, you know, a Federation's like uh, a starship and take it over remotely with a five digit code. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. They have a, <laughs> a 
speaking of codes. <laughs> so I'm like, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or or the self-destruct codes to the enterprise. What is it? AA1? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> something like that. I mean, AA21B. Or some, yeah. something like that. And I'm like, okay, so like, if you make an account on IMDB, they're going to make you have a better password than that, right? Yeah, they, you should at least have a sort of some, some sort of hash to, and you, to correct. It's like the there, enterprise yeah. should be like, I'm sorry, you need at least one special character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, caps, caps and lowercase, please. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, Kirk's password would probably be Orion Chicks Rule with a zero for the O. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Orion Chick 69. Yeah, yeah Orion Chick 69. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, ampersand to get that special character. Right. <laughs> well, as we come to the end of this show, did you have any uh, parting shots? Any aft torpedoes uh, that you <laughs> wanted to get out? <laughs> nice. Um. No, nothing. Uh, I, 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 you know, if you, or nothing or, or should I say, if I lower the filter enough to everything I want to say, then we'll be here for six <laughs> hours. Right. So I, uh, nothing specifically on this episode. Um, uh, I, I remember thinking, well, surely the Romulans must have another weapon other than the giant death plasma ball. Right. Yeah. Right. Couldn't they also have like, you know, couldn't they also have had like some phasers or whatever the Romulan disruptors, I think, is that what it is? That's what Romulans have disruptors. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't they also have some disruptors? It's like saying, Oh, I have a battleship. It has one big gun up front. Should we have some like machine guns mounted on? No, no one big gun. (laughs) Right. I don't think that Schneider was thinking really that far ahead. I mean, there is a, a couple notes to the fact that the ship only has impulse power, which means it would yeah. take years for them to get home. Me, yeah, which leads me to my next problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, at only impulse. I uh, I don't understand that either. Yeah, because... But it, it's, early, it's early days on the show still. Yeah, I guess. Getting a lot of that figured out. That's kind of my last comment for the episode is that it is early days, and so you see a show that is still trying to figure out, you know, what Star Trek is. Yeah. But they had the instinct, um, and really the the idea, the concept of the project that they correctly went to something that was similar to, you know, steal great artist steal, right? To steal yeah. the best parts of something else that fit, I think, really great into this universe. Yeah, they did a great job. It's amazing to think that I, I didn't realize it until you said it uh, that that there are no photon torpedoes yet. Yeah. <laughs> And you kind of need those for a story like this. Yeah. They did the submarine movie with no torpedoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Uh, of, of, the, of the Enterprises? You mean, oh, of, the, of the Star Trek canon? Sure. Hmm. Favorite captain. Do I have to be one? Do, do I have to pick like Kirk, Picard, Janeway, or can no, I pick somebody you could like go. Robert Brooks. Brooks. <laughs> well, yeah, Robert April. You could even go uh, Star Trek Continues. Uh, somebody you saw on there. Um, I, I, I think I got to go Kirk. I mean, sorry to be generic, but no, that's fine. I mean, he's the one I enjoy watching the most, you know? Yeah. 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 I always liked how, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, Picard is like, oh, we can't, you know, we can't. We can't fix this one guy's broken toe because the prime directive prevents it. Meanwhile, Kirk, <laughs> your Bible is a lie. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> Here, let me talk your computer to death and destroy yeah. your civilization. You're free. I am imperfect. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to imagine other Starfleet captains in this situation of, you know, facing uh, a, a submarine duel like oh, this and how okay. they do. Let's talk about that. I think Lorca would kick their ass. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Not even thinking about it. Yeah. Um, also, um, uh, Cisco, if we're talking about dominion war era, Cisco. So after he's got some combat experience under his belt, I think he'd do a pretty good job too. Yeah. Uh, Janeway would be okay. She, she has a lot of combat experience. I honestly, I think Picard would be the least qualified because he's so fervently looking for peaceful solutions that, you know, I, I don't think he, I, I don't think he'd do as well as the others. <laughs> That's true. Although he does have the biggest ship. Well, okay. Well, no, I was talking about they're in command of. Oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just so, saying like, He's got a lot of firepower. And of course, if they've only got impulse in that one big gun, then the the Picard maneuver will probably work on them. He could do well, some. Well, they did effectively do the Picard maneuver during um, this. The Enterprise like warps to get in front of them. Right, right. So in a way, although the Picard maneuver is you do warp so that you're kind of in two places at one time for a moment. So right. they didn't do that. But they did take advantage of their warp engines. That's true. That's yeah. true. Uh, I, of course you'd know that. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, is this guy got another Picard mover? Of course he does. Oh. <laughs> now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Oh, I got to be in the sciences. I'm a blue shirt for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I think maybe, um, well, something in maybe. the sciences like sensors. Yeah, it'd be neat. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, I, I'd like to work at the sensor station. You know, the one that Spock's always looking into. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd like that. I miss the kind of disappear. I mean, of course, it's impractical when you can just have a liquid crystal display or whatever. But yeah. I miss the uh, him staring into that thing. Yeah. Well, it was another. It was another budget concern. It let him explain what he's seeing rather than them having to do special effects to put it on a screen. Yeah, that was always a problem. I, I love the uh, Frank Gorshin episode where <laughs> they ran out of money and they're like, what's their ship like? It's invisible. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess we good. don't have to No model. Yeah. That's the one where he's like black on one side, white on the other. Yes. Let that be your last battlefield. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That one was missed. Uh, that was, I mean, that's the third season. Yeah. You know, I like the Riddler as much as the next guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Anson Weir, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EISDPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Me? Uh, you can find me at, uh, at Andy Weir Author on Twitter or Andy Weir on Facebook. Awesome. And your book, Artemis, is available now? Available now in bookstores near you. And the audiobook version is narrated by the lovely and talented Rosario Dawson. So. Amazing. Who is a huge Star Trek fan? Oh, is she? I didn't even know that. Oh, really? Yeah, she's, um, I saw her on, um, I don't know, Colbert, like she was speaking Klingon or something. <laughs> yeah, she's the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah, I didn't know that. I've never met her in person. I, I was like, I did a panel with her once at Comic-Con and I was on Skype and she was in person. And so, but oh, I've okay. very little direct interaction with her, but she did a fantastic job on the reading. Great. Well, uh, audience, look out for that. Uh, thanks again, Andy, for joining me. No, thanks for having me. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. So